So everybody survived Thanksgiving. That's good. And we're here to celebrate our uh, our time in Badland. <clears throat> like Craig said, he, he mentioned you can see the candles. Um, we're going to be celebrating uh, four weeks of Advent with our four candles. And I'm not sure where the, the word Advent came from. And my Greek is a little bit rusty. Um, but I believe the ad came from the word Adnaleo, um, which means prepare. And then Ven came from uh, the city of Venice, where there's great chocolate. And the end came from Entenmens, which means cookies. So putting that all together, it's a it's a, a time of preparing to eat many chocolate chip cookies. So I guess my uh, Greek is not so rusty. Um, now we have four beautiful weeks that we're going to prepare our hearts for the celebration, and that's not a lot of time when you think about the fact that from the time that uh, the uh, the Savior was promised uh, in Genesis to the time that He came and we'll talk about it in Matthew, was 4,000 years. And we only have four weeks, so we feel like that's not a lot of time. But uh, in all honesty, you've had 2,000 years to prepare for this, right? So I think you should be set. We, uh, uh, we're gonna look at hope this week, the first candle. And then as we go around, we'll look at faith next week. And then the third candle will be pink is joy. And the fourth will be love. Uh, we'll talk about the suffering servant, and then of course, then there'll be Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. And we'll talk about Jesus as the center of all of that. And if anybody starts to light the candles out of order, my eye will begin to twitch. So whoever's in charge of these, make sure that you do it the right way. Third one, pink is joy always. So we're going to look at three main themes as we go through the series for uh, these four weeks. We're going to look at how Jesus has been God's plan from the very beginning. We're going to look at God being a promise maker and a promise keeper. And we're going to see how Jesus is the ultimate kept promise of God. So keep those in mind as you're spending some quiet time and, and preparing your hearts for yet. And I, as Craig said, I hope you would uh, do something special during these four weeks. Uh, like Psalm 119 says, uh, we will meditate on your precepts. So for some folks, I know that this is a, uh, a difficult time. Maybe friends and family are away long distance. Um, maybe it's your first Christmas after losing a loved one. I know there are cultural pressures that can create a sense of loneliness. Um, world headlines or politics may paint a dismal picture for you. Uh, so few in our culture, it seems, follow Jesus. That gets a little, uh, a little difficult. Uh, there are pressures from social media to be accepted. There are pressures of career to be recognized. And so for some, I know this is a reminder of hers, and I acknowledge those. Those are very real. And uh, it can make it hard to see that there's hope. But there's reason to eagerly anticipate what's to come besides the chocolate chip cookies. I'm going to repeat this part of the sermon at the end. Um, and hopefully it'll dig in a little deeper for you then than it does right now. But those things that I mentioned, don't, they don't have to define us. They're very real, but they don't have to define us. It's easy to become fixated on them because <clears throat> letting, and sometimes we'll just let them hold us captive. Let's put it in terms that maybe is a little more relatable. Um, think of somebody in the world you look up to, somebody you respect, somebody that you would honor. Um, maybe it's a, a celebrity, maybe it's a, a national hero or a local hero. Um, for me, when I was a kid, you know, everybody looked up to John Wayne. Uh, maybe today it's uh, Millie Bobby Brown, or something in between for you. But let's say you get a message from them, and that message says that they want to meet with you. You're like, wow, who 
cool, sure. So at the end of getting together with this person that you just really held up high, they say to you something like, you know, this has been super mind-blowing for me, and having you here has been so valuable that I'd love for this relationship to continue if, if you're okay with that. What would your reaction be? I mean, would you, would you feel valued? Switch out that someone with the someone who has so much power that he can create the stars and the solar systems and the universe and the galaxies. And he says to you, just having you here is insanely valuable to me. And I'd love for this relationship to continue if you're okay with that. You see, you are so much more valuable than those list of difficulties. Not valuable to me, not valuable to the world around you. You're valuable to the only one that matters, the amazing creator of everything. And he sees you just as he intended you to be. Perfect. He's written your name on the palm of his hands, and he says, come to me just like you are. I love you like this. Let's open up with some prayer. Father, as we gather here to worship you, with fellowship and with songs, with giving and serving and the study of your word. Lord, I just ask that you would use me to preach your sermon this morning. I ask that you would fill the empty space that's in someone's heart. It could only be filled with a very true gospel story of how you created us and the world perfect. Sin messed it up. And then you fixed it to be perfect again. Please bless our time. If you'll flip in your Bibles to Matthew 1, and if you don't have Bibles, we've got some on the aisles here. And if you're new here and you haven't heard this before, if you don't have a copy of the Scriptures at home, let us know, and we're going to see that you get one, because I think it's very important for everybody to have access to a copy of God's Word. So put your finger uh, right at Matthew 1, and then flip over to Genesis 3, and we're going to start there in Genesis 3. I'm going to read the entire chapter of, of Genesis 3. I'm a little behind, so I'm going to get started. The last uh, verse of chapter 2 says, And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, she will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of his fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves one cloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you you were naked? 
Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you've done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. The woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. You you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life, and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So there we see the story of the fall. Now let's go straight into Matthew Chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being just a man and unwilling to put her shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. The prophet Isaiah had said, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. When Joseph woke up from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. That is the gospel message. He created the world and us perfectly. Sin messed it up, and then he sent Jesus in place. We're going to get hope three different angles today. One is the hope that's provided by this world. We're going to look at the hope of deliverance from this world, and then we're going to look at the hope that's in the promises of the Creator of this world. And we all put at least some hope in the things that are provided by this world. What kind of things? Well, we'll go through some of the more common things first, 
and then we'll go through some of the more heavy things. None of these is bad at its core, but they can lead to uh, some unhealthy dependence. Maybe you look to um, power for hope, or where done it can become controlling. Maybe you look to money for hope, security, and that can lead to some greed. Maybe for you it's importance or significance or relevance. The downside of that is it can become something that defines our identity. Maybe your hope is in marriage or sex. That can become an unhealthy level of needing to be treasured by someone else. And millennials seem to put their hope in uh, privacy, but that can lead to isolation. Gen Z seems to put their hope in relationships and community, just the opposite of the previous generation. Sometimes that ends up directing them into an unhealthy need for, again, recognition or acceptance. But what's the, what's the common link? What brings these all together? What's the one word that runs through them as the common thread? It's value. Our hope is that these things that we value will quench our thirst, that they'll appeal to our senses, but especially our sense of purpose. But do they? Do they? Absolutely. Absolutely they do. With one caveat, it's for a limited amount and a limited time. Maybe for you there's hope in this world through something considered by our culture a little more heavy. Maybe you had found hope in drugs, homosexuality, self-harm, abortion, the Tinder app. Maybe these gave you hope for a new start. I'm going to go a little sidebar here. While some folks in some Christian circles might look down on you for these things, know that here you're not. Jesus loves you just as you are. And we try to model that, and we don't do it perfectly like he did. But you are loved, and you're welcome here, even with all that baggage. We'd love to walk through those things with you. Maybe you're caught up in them, and only to find that these escapisms that you turned to were actually worse than the actual pain you were trying to escape. I don't get me wrong. I mean, these things are sinful, and we can't negate what the Bible says about them being sin. But we also don't want to forget what the Bible shows and tells us about loving all people, whether we agree with what they do or not. So I'll say it again. You're welcome here, just as you are, Lord's All right, end of the sidebar. Uh, in uh, mid-1600s, Pascal said this, All people seek happiness. This is without exception. By whatever means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire of both, just attended to by different means. They'll never take the least step but to this object of being happy. This is the motive of every man. Now let's look at it a little more realistically. Picture your favorite food or song or vacation place, whatever, something that's that's one of your favorites. And let's say that um, you treasure this and you've got an entire plate overflowing full of it. You're just starting up and you're so excited because you've been anticipating this for weeks or months. And you've got the whole thing to look forward to. 
You take the first few samples and you're just loving it. And as you go through, you start to get down to the end. And you're down to the very last part, the very last bite, or the very last day of that vacation. It's going to be over after this very last part. You're kind of let down. It was just a temporary high with a little bit of a crash at the end, right? <coughs> Solomon spent a lifetime learning this. He had all that he needed and all that he wanted. In today's dollars, he made three-fourths of a billion dollars every single year. That's hard to con get a concept of a billion dollars, but think of a million dollars, and there are a thousand stacks of a million dollars. So there's nothing that money couldn't buy that he didn't have. Getting started in Ecclesiastes 2.1, he said, I will explore and find out what is happiness. This guy had food, money, sexual pleasure, entertainment, power, wisdom, intellect, all unlimited. He never lacked for anything he wanted. Whatever wind passed through his mind instantly, no delayed gratification. Yet he still said, when I surveyed, everything was meaningless. Nothing was gained. It was but a striving after the wind. He concluded that completeness was not attainable. He said, I was left wanting. In fact, he found it actually more frustrating to have everything known to mankind and still feel emptiness. It was just a temporary high. A bit of a crash at the end. After all this, finally in Ecclesiastes 12, he said, faith in God was man's only man. Faith in God was man's only matter. C.S. Lewis said this, A creature is not created with a desire that cannot be satisfied. God sees to it that there is a means to satisfy that desire. For hunger, there's food. For thirst, there's water. And he went on. You see, God made in us a desire for relationship. But here's the thing. Human relationships will always disappoint, some more than others. The only one to fully satisfy that desire is God. Jesus told us, with the water that I give, you will live forever. No crash in Solomon's dad, David, the one who slayed Goliath, discovered the same thing. He wrote it in Psalm 27.4. One thing. I have asked for from the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Where is a person's hope? Is it in the all-sufficiency of Jesus? Now, if you're saying, that was a long time ago, that was biblical times, that has nothing to do with me now, I know I'm finding my identity in school or work or sports or my job or peer acceptance. And I know that needs to change, but ah, I just don't believe Jesus can change that and still fill me up to that same level. To a point where I don't even want or need those escapes anymore. Even if they are unhealthy for me. You're not alone. It's even more true today. During our, our technological revolution today, we're deprived of the character-building concept of delayed gratification. Anything you want to know, you just Google it. Instantly, you got an answer. But one of the purposes of our time here is that 
It'll prepare us for heaven. And heaven is intended to be delayed gratification. God has purposes for us here during this time on this earth. But we tend to see the purpose of following Jesus as going through God in order to get the things that we think will make us happy. We tend to see it as a purpose following Jesus just to go through God in order to get the things that make us happy. Happiness from the world is fleeting. But joy because of Jesus is everlasting. If we're looking for happiness now, we're just setting ourselves up for disappointment because God's not in the business of providing me with happiness. In fact, Scripture tells us he frequently squelches happiness and gives us circumstances of toil just to build our character and our dependence on him. But we interpret it as, and if I follow him closely, I'm going to have to give up the type of happiness and pleasure and satisfactions that I know. He just only provides barely what we need. Everything else comes from the world. In other words, I'm unconvinced that God will satisfy my deep hunger for actual soul-fulfilling joy, which is real security and true purpose. It's so easy for our hope to become misplaced when we put it in the things of this world. It's insufficient. Sometimes we hope put our hope in deliverance from the things of this world. In the very beginning, when God was explaining the fall and sin in Genesis, like we read, he promised a Savior, a deliverer. This is his plan from actually before day one, even before we heard about it in Genesis. But many Jews didn't get it, and they hoped for deliverance, and that's very different than a hope for a deliverer. They didn't care how they got delivered. For them, they just went out of their circumstances. It could have been Jesus, could have been Barabbas, could have been Monty Python's Brian. They didn't care. They were being offered God himself in the form of his human son, but that wasn't where they placed their hope. They placed it in the happiness that would come from fixing their circumstances. They were seeking water from a well that would allow them to physically thirst again instead of the living water of Jesus that would quench their spiritual thirst forever. But they didn't see it. Why? Why? Because those who missed it were focused on themselves, on their own miseries. Ones who got it were focused on God. They didn't miss it. God didn't let them miss it. He wasn't going to let them miss it. So if right now you're immersed and consumed with your own circumstances and your own misery, it's easy for me to stand up here and say, just focus on God. But I want to challenge you to something. Something practical. Turning your eyes on someone else's needs. On their misery. Not for comparison of yours to theirs, but for ministry. How can you come alongside and walk with them through theirs? Not fixing it. Just, just walking with them. Listening to them talk. Being with them through it. It's a blessing when someone allows you into the deepest, most intimate circle of their life and their heart struggles. You'd be amazed how God can use that in their life and in yours. Think about Jesus when he was hanging on the cross and he was dying. Wasn't he looking to the needs of the one hanging next to him? Look, I know, we just want to avoid bad circumstances. I get it. We spend a lot of our time and resources uh, trying to get out of our hassles. Oh, please, just stop this turmoil. It's so easy for our hope to become misplaced when we hope for deliverance from the things of this world. 
It's insufficient. So while avoiding the painful things of the world in one hand and looking for pleasurable things from the world on the other hand, it gives us the illusion of being filled with hope. But I promise you, any glimmer is fleeting. Because we've, we've built on a foundation of sinking sand instead of on solid rock. So I'll ask the same question again. Where is a person's hope? Is it in the all-sufficiency of Jesus? Let's look at this. How many promises of God do you think are in the Bible? I saw one resource that said 3,600. Another one said 5,500. Another one said 7,500. So we're only going to go over the first 1,000. So take these down. Number one, why God made so many promises? Maybe. Maybe so we would have total confidence, belief, Credence, faith, trust, peace, joy, and hope in just the one promise from the very beginning, 6,000 years ago, that all the others hinge on. He made those promises and kept all those promises so that we could have faith in the one promise that matters. Go back to our plate of food for a minute, that one that's overflowing with what we wanted, or that vacation, whatever. Now imagine that that plate, or that vacation, or that song never ended. That we could have all we wanted without any downside, without any of Solomon's disappointment. If you go on in that Psalm of David, he says that dwelling in God, living our life, our daily activities attached to God, moment by moment through the entire day, he says that God alone will quench that desire for satisfaction. Spurgeon also had something to say on this. He said that a smile from God in the pit of hell is immeasurably better than a frown from God when we're in the best place. Complete tranquility is more valuable than the finest jewels of the world. Think about that. If you have complete tranquility, is there anything else that you would want? They're, they're diametrically opposed. He is all-sufficient, and he's demonstrated it many times. One is in Exodus. Remember the story of the manna? They collected manna every day. And it was the full amount that they needed. But if they tried to collect anything extra, it spoiled by the next morning. Why was that? Because God wanted them to depend on him every day. They wanted them to come to him daily for their needs. What a lesson that is. I've got a buddy, his name is Ron Rowan, he's an artist. And he, uh, he painted a, a painting, and it was beautiful. There were... Uh, three siblings all seated at a dinner table. And there were no parents. They were orphans. And they were wearing the only set of clothes that they owned. They all had their whole hands folded and they were giving thanks. And the remarkable thing about this painting is that they were giving thanks and their dinner table was empty. Not a single thing on. If I remember right, he said it was inspired by another piece of art that he saw, similar to this one uh, that Joe's going to put up for us. Now, this is not it. This is something similar that I can find. But uh, in the one that he saw that inspired him, <clears throat> there was a man in his 90s. Um, his wife was gone. He'd outlived her. He'd outlived all of his war buddies. His hearing was gone. His sight had faded to black. All his joints were crippled. He's sitting at a dinner table, all alone. He had bread. He had water. And his prayer was one simple phrase that actually was a question. 
we look at it, we say, all of this in Jesus too? You couldn't believe it. You couldn't believe that he was that blessed. There's all sufficiency in Jesus. Now we'll probably never have the relentless blows to our face and our body that make it ache so badly that we can't even tell where our body is throbbing from anymore. We'll probably never feel the whips that are filled with beat hooks that penetrate the skin of our backs when they're thrown, or the tearing of the flesh off of our bones when they yank it back. We'll never have our hands or feet crushed with the huge spikes driven through them that hold our entire body weight. We'll never carry the crippling weight of sin on our shoulders that weighs us down until we can't lift our foot off the ground and take one more step and our knees buckle. But most importantly, we'll never experience the anguish, the complete and utter isolation and loneliness that abandonment becomes from God turning his face away. All these are what we deserve because of our sin, but we will never see any of it. Because of our hope and the promise in Jesus. So experience all of that to the deepest, most painful depths, physically, emotionally, spiritually, so that we never, ever will. Oh yeah, like Stephen, the first martyr for God who was stoned to death, we could, we could get captured by terrorists, we could get tortured in some similar ways, but we would feel the physical pain only. And even in that, we would never experience the turning away of God. Because of Jesus. God would be with us. He would be in us. He would be carrying us through that. What about those that don't know that promise? Who refuse that free gift? God would be there with an invitation in hand, waving them over. Because without it, they have no hope. Brennan Manning said in this sermon something like this. I paraphrase some of this, but basically he said, Jesus submitted. He held up his hands. He spread out his arms. He surrendered his feet, and he laid sprawled out on a cross for additional torture and gave his all. Even the clothing on his body, everything he had for you. He did all this not to motivate us to be a little better behaved or a little more moral in this life, but to consume every single one of our sins and burn them up in a fiery furnace so that we will never have to think about them again. It's the unbelievable, astonishing, mind-blowing truth that he loves you in such a way, and not Billy Graham, not Mother Teresa, not all of humankind in some vague sort of sense, but he loves you in such a way that he'd rather die. And he left us his cross as a sign of his dying body and his undying love. How insane is that system of justice? We bring nothing but filthy rags. Jesus does nothing but perfect, yet he gets punished for our offenses while we blissfully whistle and skip off scot-free. How can it be that he gave his life? Scripture says it over and over and over. Who am I, Lord, that you are mindful of me? This is my comfort during my affliction, that your promise gives me life. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, 
and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to shield, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are right pleasures forevermore. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me, and he heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. You have multiplied, O Lord, my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare to you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet there are more that can be told. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me. I cannot see. They are more than the hairs on my head. My heart fails me. As for me, I am poor and I'm needy. But the Lord takes thought of me. You are my help and my deliverer. None can compare to you. Your deeds are too many to declare. Whether it's upcoming worries about security, or being noticed, or being relevant, or a whole history of old worries about past bad choices, they don't amount to the whole beings. Because we know that it's all covered. Jesus tells us that he came to a manger because of sin, and he fought the battle against sin and against countless demons, and he won so that after we accept his free gift of paying the cost for our sin we never have to worry about the way God looks at us again he looks at us and he sees beauty and integrity and forthrightness I could go on and on and on but in a word he looks at us and he sees perfection the father seeing us like this gushes hope right into us because of the fall we want to avoid painful things in this world on one hand and because of the fall, we want to look for pleasurable things from this world. On the other hand, both give the illusion of being filled with hope, but our true hope lies in neither end, but is placed right in the center of our heart where God places it, and that's the promise, which says, I will send a Savior, and he will save his people from their sins. The virgin will conceive and bear a son. You see, every part of the Bible is about Jesus. Think about it, Genesis 2. Like we read, excuse me, in three, before then two, avoiding the apple was the one and only way and the one and only hope to avoid slavery to Satan. In Genesis 7, the ark was the one and only hope for refuge from the flood. Fleeing out to the desert in Exodus was the one and only hope to get to the promised land. For Jonah, going to Nineveh was the one and only hope to avoid another storm and another fish. For us, there is one and only one hope to avoid the floods and the storms and the fish forever and to make it to the promised land. His name is Jesus. He's our hope. I know I'm using different words to say the same thing over and over. That's intentional because my prayer is that one of those many different ways with those many different facets will match up with what God's doing in at least one person's heart here today. So I'm going to go on some more. In our Genesis passage today, yes, Satan will bruise Jesus' heel, and that Jesus had to go to the cross. 
But Jesus, in turn, bruises Satan's head, and that Jesus destroys all sin. And when Jesus returns, he'll destroy Satan himself. In verse 22, God's promise shows up again when he tells us that not of the tree of knowledge, he doesn't talk about that, he talks about that, he, that man must partake of the tree of life, where he can leave, eat and live forever. So while we're spitting in his face and chanting for him to leave us alone, he passionately and relentlessly pursues us to wrap his arms around us and offers to adopt us. And if we've accepted, then we're already God's children. He welcomes us just as we are, not as we think we should be. So if you have worries, or you have self-loathing, or you have some corrupt desires, don't be afraid. Because it's not our goodness or our actions or our attitudes that save us. It's just simply living by faith in Jesus Christ alone, accepting his gift. No matter how deep you feel your valley is, your feelings don't figure into your salvation at all. You're already God's child. The final adoption paper's been signed. They're sealed. It's done. We're completely blameless. We're cleared of all guilt. We're set free from our prison gates. We have the right to approach the king, our dad's throne, because justice cannot prosecute the innocent. There's no punishment for the guiltless. There's now no condemnation for us who believe in Christ Jesus. He accepts us as we currently are. The hope, the hope, that was promised so long ago is our Jesus. There's a song by Lauren Daigle. Here's some of the lyrics. It says, you plead my cause, you right my wrongs, you break my chains, and you overcome. You gave your life to give me. You say I'm free. Like the infomercial, but wait, that's not all. There's more. We'll also be made royalty. Jesus was perfectly obedient on our behalf. Now we share the joys and the privileges that we will possess as if we had never ever sinned at all. <clears throat> we'll be exceedingly rich in glory. We'll be seated right beside him. We're going to be exceedingly rich because he who was exceedingly rich became exceedingly poor by giving us his riches. But wait, there's still more. Yes, he pleads our cause. And yes, we're set free. And yes, we receive his riches. But 1 John 3.2 says, we don't even know yet what we'll be like when Jesus comes back. We can't even imagine it. There's another song, it's by Mercy Me, says, I can only imagine. Maybe it should be called, I can't even begin to imagine. But I don't know, they made a little success with it, I guess. So I guess the title will stay. Um, but it says, when I'm surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus? Or in awe of you, be still? Will I stand in your presence? Or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing out hallelujah? Or will I be able to speak at all? I can only imagine. So yeah, there's reason to eagerly anticipate what's to come besides chocolate chip cookies. Those turmoils I mentioned earlier don't have to get in the way. They don't define us. They're real, and they're there. I acknowledge that, but they don't define us. And maybe sometimes we do let them define us to a certain amount. Maybe we become fixated on them. Maybe they're holding us captive and enslaving us. 
God did not design you for those. That's not his intent. Think again about that someone you look up to. And they say, having you here is insanely valuable to me. Again, would you feel valued? I'll switch that out with the one who created the universe. And he says to you, just having you here is insanely valuable to me. And I'd love for this relationship to continue if you're okay with that. Jesus is bigger than all of these things. And he says that you are so much more valuable than that list of difficulties. You're valuable. In fact, you're priceless. You're invaluable to the God of the universe, the only one that actually matters. God sees you as perfect. He knew you before you were knit together in your mother's womb. He's written his name on the palm of your hands. He will never stop fighting for you. He has numbered every hair on your head. Not one of them grows longer or falls out without him knowing about it. He's caught every tear that you've ever shed in a bottle, and he'll continue to do so. That's how much he cares. You know, anyone who loves you like that? I know my wife loves me. And I know she points out that the thin spot on the back of my head gets bigger each time and thinner. But I guarantee you she's not cataloging me like God does. He knows me more than He does love me just just like that. You can see you the way that he sees you. Irreplaceable, incomparable, invaluable. yourself up first. He's Alpha, he's powerful, he's supreme, he's overseer, king of kings, conqueror, master, governor, prince, our shelter, our armor, bridegroom, omega. There's no other name given among men by which we must be saved but the all-sufficient name of Jesus. That gives us hope during Advent. I'll answer my own question from earlier. Where is a person's hope? In the all-sufficiency of Jesus? Yes. Yes and amen. Our only hope is in the all-sufficiency of Jesus. Scripture, again, I can't say it any better, obviously. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he lives. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. The gospel story tells us God's plan all along was perfect creation. God's plan all along was a perfect solution to the sin that would mess it up. God's plan all along was to keep the ultimate promise. God's plan all along was for us to accept Jesus into our lives. God's plan all along was to see us as perfect once again. And Jesus, from a manger, is our hope. I'm going to read to you Psalm 118. <clears throat> o Lord, 
give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress I called on the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling. But the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are the tents of righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me. Become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. All this is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his life to come to us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up on the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. I'll give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Steadfast love into his Father, Abba, Papa. You love us beyond what words can even express or imaginations can fathom. That you give us the Holy Spirit to show us just, just a glimpse of how glorious you are. And you give us all that you promise in one simple solution. Savior, in Jesus. And so, we have hope.